Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Moonrise Kingdom is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about Moonrise Kingdom. September 1965. A storm is three days away from the New England coast. At an island camp, a khaki scout's gone missing. Sam, 12, a bespeckled misfit. Sam is running away with Susie, his pen pal, the laconic child in a quirky and unhappy household. As Sam and Susie sort through their own issues, they stay a step ahead of the dysfunctional groups trying to find them. Eric, I want your opinion, but in Right after I give a quick PSA to all the directors out there, stop killing dogs in your movies. I really don't like it. You really don't need it. Unless you're making John Wick, which Mm -hmm. is a movie that fully Mm -hmm. satisfied me with how the result of the dead dog went. I don't want to see dead dogs. Kill a kid. I'm cool with that compared to the dog. Guillermo del Toro has got you covered, my friend. Thank God. Eric, what would you think of Moonrise Kingdom? (laughs) Moonrise Kingdom. So, uh, you know, I went into this movie having watched it once before. Mm-hmm. It was a you know strong Oscar contender the year that it came out, uh, and I remember watching it and just really hating it. I thought that the movie was really not entertaining. Mm-hmm. The first time I watched it, yeah, and walking away with a real bad taste in my mouth on this film. All right. Um. And that's just my own personal opinion. I know a lot of people really like the movie, mm-hmm. um, but you asked, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Was it? And do you feel the same now? Did did your opinion change after watching it the second time? In context to all of the rest of Wes Anderson's work, I am just fine with this movie. But I, I definitely still think it's his worst film. Ooh, I don't know that I'd go that that far now. Um, okay. I think, you know, I had a lot of issues with Bottle Rocket, and I think that right. on this second viewing, I have come above Bottle Rocket with Moonrise Kingdom. I'm actually, uh-huh. I was actually really enjoyed it on this, this second viewing. I, I came oh, okay. around on it. So it's not his best work, but I yeah. think that he did a lot of really complex things thematically and with mm-hmm. his actors, especially using two children, uh, and telling a love story at that age is really tricky, and I mm-hmm. think that's what I struggled with the first time. Yeah. Um, but something about this viewing, I was just reminded of how emotional that age can be, how everything feels like <laughs> it's the best or worst thing to ever happen in your life. Yeah. And I think he does a really good job of capturing that. Yeah, I mean, I... One of the reasons why I really didn't like this movie when I watched it the first time was that I just am not a fan of, like, wise children mm-hmm. in movies. Um, I think that kids should be kids. I think that, like, like Stranger Things is a perfect example of, like, kids being kids and how fun and immersive that can be. Or something like The Goonies, right? Yeah. Or one of my favorite movies of all time, one of my top three movies of all time, Attack the Block. Like, all of these movies are kids being kids and embracing their immaturity, right? And Mm -hmm. there's something that's cool about that um, because they're naive, you know? There's a naivete to youth. Yeah. 
And when I watched this movie this time, I actually was not annoyed with the kids. Mm-hmm. And I realized that they are not wise. <laughs> yeah, they're really not. They actually, they're not. I don't know what it is. It felt a little bit uh, Fincher-esque in Seven, where you're just remembering huh. things that don't happen. Yeah, uh, yeah probably. But these kids are, are dorks. Uh, Sam yeah. especially is this... He does this move that I'm sure I did a lot, which was... Like wearing the leaves under his hat to keep his head cool, and Susie saying, well, "You could just take the hat off." And he's like, "Yeah, right. I guess that's an option too." Like you do right. this dumb stuff because you mm-hmm. read about it, uh, you think it looks cool, and you want to show off to people. And in reality, you look like a giant dork. <laughs> uh, you're in your efforts to look cool. You have overshot all sensibility. Which yeah. is fine when you're 12. It's totally. It's totally I mean, what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And that's why one of the reasons I really like this movie is that we've gone away from the confident buffoon. And mm-hmm. now we have confident buffoons. I think Sam mm. and Susie are mm. the confident buffoons. And I think mm. everybody else is just loose and blowing in the wind all of the adults especially are unsure uh they're very unconfident in un, inconfident they they struggle with <laughs> life and their age yeah. and watching them deal with the kids is one of the things that's difficult you see these kids that really need a role model and all they've got are the shitty adults on this island mm. I mean, I, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I mm-hmm. don't think that the kids in this movie embody the Wes Anderson confident buffoon archetype as I see it. Because mm-hmm. And to recap what that archetype is for, for listeners who might be jumping right in on our Moonrise Kingdom cast, uh, the Wes Anderson confident buffoon archetype is an archetype that we have uncovered throughout our watch of Wes Anderson's movies. And... What it does is it basically embodies his main character in all of his movies, every single one of his movies, up until Moonrise Kingdom. And that's, well, Dignan's not really the main character. He's a supporting (laughs) character. But it's Dignan and Bottle Rocket. It's Max and Rushmore. It's Royal and Royal Tenenbaums. It's Steve Zissou and The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. It's... um, it's Owen Wilson's character, who I still don't know the name of, in Darjeeling Limited. <laughs> the oldest brother. Yeah, the oldest brother. And then it's uh, it's Mr. Fox and the Fantastic Mr. Fox. All of those characters are very similar because they're charismatic leaders with tons mm-hmm. of flaws. And they embody, they, they overcome any of their flaws with uh, overconfidence. And they ooze confidence and charisma. But, you know, as Mr. Fox stated in the fantastic mr fox uh he said i think i have this thing where i'm supposed to be the be the fantastic mr fox and that's kind of this idea is that they're all kind of living up to this archetype this stylized version of themselves and that's what they project on other people yeah it's the same character in all these movies i don't think that the kids embody that character in this movie it's a different take on it for sure. Uh, yeah. And what makes me think about it, the moment that really <laughs> kind of blew it up for me was when Susie is in the bathtub with her mom and her mom mm-hmm. is trying to be an adult. And Susie mm-hmm. just explains that 
they are in love they want to be together what's wrong with that the confidence that they have in their relationship uh, yeah. is what it's what inspires me to say that they are confident buffoons because they're kids they don't know <laughs> that they're that's the end of this movie is two weeks later they've broken up and they need <laughs> yeah, to be off this island because yeah. they can't be that close to one another and they're talking to all their friends about it but in this moment they are confident that they love each other that they want to be mm. married and so it's it's certainly a different confidence um but i think that it's it's unique and i think that's why maybe you and i struggle with it f- the first time is that it's mm. not the same wes anderson film that we are used no, to it's there not certainly pieces but things especially thematically he's really reworked it yeah, I mean, it stands out in that way because it is a very unique work in the Anderson canon. Um, I think that just because the kids are confident and just because they're stupid because they're young, um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, <laughs> younger people are not as smart because they haven't learned as much. It's objective. But yeah. <laughs> in, for the most part. Just because they're <laughs> confident, I, I feel like that was a really mean statement. No, I was just going to let you keep digging. Um, <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is just because they're confident, just because they're buffoons, does not necessarily mean to me that they embody that confident buffoon archetype as we've identified it. Mm-hmm. And when you said that this movie has confident buffoons, I feel like the adults in the movie embody that confident buffoon. And specifically... I feel like Edward Norton's character <laughs> okay, yes. is the confident buffoon in this movie. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I mean, just the opening scene, the first time that we see Edward Norton, he's walking through. I mean, you could you could almost substitute Max in Rushmore for his character, or you could almost substitute Steve Zissou walking through the Belafonte for his character in this opening scene where he's walking through the Khaki Scout camp, and he's saying, Johnson, you know, but what, you know that's a that's a strike on your motor privileges, and yeah. you know how's the how's the latrine coming, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. That is the confident buffoon character. I feel like it's a very, it's a very good um, capsule of what Anderson's confident buffoon archetype is. Is that one scene where he's walking through the camp, um, yeah. and he does but, go through the the development that we usually see with these characters where at the Mm -hmm. end he has achieved some level of self-awareness that he desired. He has a girlfriend, which is a great little story to tell in the background of this movie. Um, But I I agree that that is the, the one that we've come to know and love uh, certainly, but not played by Owen Wilson, who was probably played by Owen Wilson. Yeah. He was probably busy. Um, But but that's the thing, like, and maybe that's why I don't like this movie as much. And I, I'm not shitting on the film. Um, when I say it's Wes Anderson's worst movie, it's still a good movie. It's still a movie that's worth watching and worth experiencing, especially mm-hmm. given the impact that Wes Anderson has had on our current cinema landscape. Yeah, you know, he is a director who stands out amongst directors in a way that very few directors do. I would say that. You know, I I think that we've done a good job on this podcast series of covering directors who have a singular voice and stand out above the crowd. I think that David Fincher kind of 
blends into the crowd mm-hmm. a little bit. He can. He can. But when you look at his body of work, it's very impressive. Guillermo del Toro is kind of on the straddling the line. But I would put I would put Wes Anderson there with Edgar Wright or with Quentin Tarantino as a director. It's like, oh, I got to go see that movie. That's a blank film. That's yeah. a Anderson film. That's a Tarantino film. That's a Wright film. And you know what you're going to see when you and go you to know the theater. What, exactly. You know what you're getting when you sit down. So Wes Anderson has made a name for himself in that way. And because of that, Moonrise Kingdom is a movie that is worth viewing. It's just, for me, it doesn't stand up to that 7.8 stars out of 10 that it currently has on on uh, IMDb. You know, it's... <laughs> I, I, I know I'm in the minority. I, I know I'm in the minority on this. People love this movie, and that's totally fine. Uh, I'm just giving you my opinion, but I don't want people. I don't want it to come across like I hate this movie because I really don't hate this movie. Yeah, I just think it's his worst movie. But that's that's <laughs> it's it's the worst movie from a great director. Uh huh. Which is such a strange caveat to put out there. You know, we do yeah. it. Every every, every time, time we have a director, there's always a, this is their worst film. But this is still better than <laughs> 99% of films that come out. <laughs> well, I mean, you watch... I mean, Edgar Wright is batting 1,000 at this point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But but you look at Blade 2. Uh-huh. You look at Alien 3. Mm-hmm. You look at Death Proof. Like, usually it's... This, the, 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 you know, the, the, the worst movie from a director, the directors that we've covered... You know, Fincher, Alien Three, um, Blade Two for Guillermo del Toro. I don't know. Maybe you like, maybe you hated Mimic more than Blade Two, but Ooh, that's uh, a tough cost. Yeah. on that one. I think I'd go yeah. after Mimic first, and then Death Proof for Tarantino. Like those are all clunkers, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, Death Proof is its own little quirky charm, but for the most part, it stands out as consensus worst movie. Mm-hmm. This isn't the consensus worst movie from Wes Anderson. That's yeah. obvious with how many people love this film. So mm-hmm. just. I, I've spent a lot of time qualifying this, but I just to me it's his worst movie. But it's still, it's it's a you know it's a good film. You it's know, a fine film. I was looking on Rotten Tomatoes as we were coming into the cast. Uh, mm-hmm. I was curious where it ranked, and I thought that our our dual opinion kind of prior was the, the agreed upon consensus that this one was just not not his great not one of his better works um, right but it's up there on rotten tomatoes it's oh yeah i think in the 80 percent, even for the audience uh, oh yeah people love this movie not to mention it was nominated uh for multiple academy awards and it won one um he he was uh wes anderson and roman coppola were nominated for best original screenplay for this movie mm-hmm. um you know it, this this film stands out it's a uh it's it's not a um i'm sorry it was nominated for that it didn't win an oscar but but it stands out i think that this movie and maybe i know that grand budapest was nominated but not many of wes anderson's movies have been nominated for an oscar and this is one of them so uh it's you know th- there's plenty of people who love this movie and that's fine yeah it's one of the most beautifully shot I think yeah. that we've seen though far oh, so yeah. far using New England. Um, and yeah, I think I knew somebody who helped with the set design. Uh, it was just a colleague when I was in school. It was the first thing they did out. But I remember Name being drop like out. super stoked to hear that somebody I knew was uh, working on the sets. And yeah. I can't imagine what it's like working for for Wes Anderson, especially 
architecturally. Yeah, uh, so let's talk about the architecture. Let's. Quick, because uh, you're an architect. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beginning of this movie is a great architectural breakdown. It's very akin to our walk through the Belafonte in yep. um, Life Aquatic. It's also very reminiscent of the opening of Panic Room. Yeah, that's what through. I was thinking. I want to yeah. put this with Panic Room and just yeah. I want to start compiling how directors, because we also get this with Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. in Kill Bill. We get an overhead shot, though, mm. when he goes room to room at the beginning of the first Kill Bill with the fight with Vernita Green um, oh. that we see looking down on top of the walls of the house. Mm. Um, it's a really fascinating way to look at something. Yes. Uh, it's the hardest thing to convey to other people I've, I've found is looking at a house mm-hmm. in section because right. when we do it architecturally, it's in 2D. Uh, but the way that Wes Anderson sets up these shots, the way that he organizes the houses uh, – you're not cutting through as many walls. You'll notice that like we're looking through a lot of doorways into rooms. Yeah. Um, but whenever we pass through the floor, that's the part where I get excited because I want to see the floor <laughs> construction of this house. Uh, what yeah. is, you know, trying to mimic sort of that classic. And I, I should have looked it up if this house is original and well-maintained or if they just built it. Uh, I'm the, fairly certain it was a set. Inside, the inside, yes, must have but been the exterior, I'm, I would love to know if it's original I, yeah, or not. Yeah, because they did exterior shots. I mean, I know you could pretty much tell that they made a miniature of it as well. Yeah, it's... Because um, it, that opening shot when we see... Uh, when we see the... What's the girl's Susie name? Susie on the... Oh, yeah, 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 when she's on top when she of looks the... Out, well, no, when she looks out the window and... Uh, we at the beginning shot they they put on that record. Oh, that's and right. It says yep. like you know going through mm-hmm. in themes and <laughs> going through each musical instrument, and then it it has that tinny record sound, mm-hmm. and then we see Susie look out the window, and then we cut to us on the other side of the window, and when we do that, the orchestra sound goes from this tinny little vinyl record player to a full blown orchestra sound, and then we do a zoom out from that moment, and you could tell that they've juxtaposed this you know, shot of Susie looking out the window on this miniature and then mm-hmm. they've composited water to be in front of it. And you know, you know, Wes Anderson just loves miniatures in general. Oh yeah. He, yeah. I wonder if his attic is just full of these sets, yeah. these models that are built for, for his productions. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a fascinating house, the way that you move through it and they're the rooms, the way that it carp and compartmentalizes the family, uh-huh. Um, and even within the house, how they operate, because we get that uh, the record discussing the orchestral composition. Yes, totally. First, we have the horns, and then we have you know the woodwinds, mm-hmm. um, and we're kind of piecing together things about the family in this moment. Seeing the boys in one room, mm-hmm. um, seeing Susie by herself with her her glass her. Uh, looking glasses uh, binoculars <laughs> uh, so formal <laughs> and uh, and then seeing the parents separated and they even use the house yeah. uh, the way that they shout across the house as this yeah big thematic gesture that they don't really spend time together and mm-hmm. to the point that they have a bullhorn to get everybody's attention in the house i love that i love i love well i love francis mcdormand in general oh yeah she crushes uh, it cuz you know i'm such a big Coen Brothers fan, mm-hmm. and she's married to one of the Coen Brothers. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Um, but uh, but you know, so she's in like every Coen Brothers movie, which yep. is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I love that. I love that house. But at the same time, I really like the orchestra because I feel like that is a bit of a metaphor for this movie. Because this movie is completely an ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting thing to look at in the context of Wes Anderson's work because he's done a couple other ensemble movies before. He did The Royal Tenenbaums, which is an ensemble movie, and he did Life Aquatic, which is an ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like how he kind of draws out the importance because there's a lot of metaphor in this film. He draws out the importance of each character as a as a part of the story. And I, I, I appreciate that a lot. I mean, I like that in the, in the end scene of this, when uh, Bruce Willis's character is up on the top of the bell tower of the church with Sam and Susie and the lightning striking. And he's on the walkie talkie with social services mm-hmm. and with Edward Orton's character and with Bill Murray and with Francis McDormand. And yeah, they're giving legal advice while, <laughs> you know, all of this stuff. Like, you can see how each character plays a part in that. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. And that's that's what this movie is about. It's about all of these... It's, a, it's You know, it's a quirky little love story, but at the same time, it's a little bit of a meta thing of an ensemble coming together to create an orchestral, you know, piece of music. So... I like that about the movie, and I and I like how they kept kind of returning to that. They, they they bookend the movie with that orchestral, you know, sections of the orchestra playing different, you know, uh, variations on the theme, which I liked. Yeah, and it throughout the movie they do much more uh, orchestral music, yeah, than we've previously heard. You know, before we got a lot mm. of uh, kind of pop songs from. This era, <laughs> in a yeah. lot, a lot of times, and now we're getting something even earlier for a movie that is set in 1965. And it's, I'm kind of surprised that they they chose a, a year in and of itself. Me too. I was very surprised by that because usually, you know, uh, Wes Harrison's movies are kind of pseudo timeless. Mm-hmm. You look at a movie like Life Aquatic, and you're like, when is what this? year is this? Uh, you know, you look at a movie like Real Tenenbaums, you ask a similar question, but there's hints in Real Tenenbaums. Like, I think they have cell phones and stuff in Real mm-hmm. Tenenbaums. Um, so, yeah, his movies are, are generally fairly timeless. So I thought it was interesting that he made this a, an exact period piece and he put a date on this. Because I don't think he really needed to do that. It um, it did add that nice piece of narration. And I don't know if this yeah. is just him experimenting, if he had this idea... And it's, you know, the piece has just been sitting on his desk and he finally found a way to slot it in because <laughs> yeah Bob Balladin as the Land's End catalog cover piece yeah is a great introduction to a little bit of, it's not foreshadow, is it? Like just letting us know there's a doom clock oh, yeah. on this island. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then coming back later and talking about the weather changing and then coming into the movie... Uh, you know, it's kind of this odd, he's breaking the fourth wall and then he leaves it behind to come in and talk about Sam, where he chose on the map to, to make camp. Uh, was It's just a really cool way of 
of executing that sort of narration and adding that tension to the end of a love story because we're so wired i think at this point to especially with wes anderson Mm -hmm. um he's got a kind of a shakespearean vibe sometimes he likes to punish uh people that are happy and lovers (laughs) um and so i remember the first time i watched this i was moderately convinced that the children were gonna die in the end yeah i thought they were gonna jump yeah i thought they were gonna jump and they were never seen again so maybe they swam (laughs) away right so well i want to get back to um we we kind of uh, glanced over it but uh, the soundtrack for this because we haven't talked about M- Mark Mothersbaugh yet, Mm-mm. even though he's Not a frequent really. <laughs> collaborator with uh, with Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. and so he he uh, you know scored Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic. I don't know if he scored this entire movie, but he did do. It was mentioned in the opening credits that he made the Khaki Scouts March for for uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Uh huh. Um, so he's like still a part of it. And I don't know what the Khaki Scouts March is, but <laughs> I don't know I don't know which part of the thing is, but you're right. Um Mark Mothersbaugh, who we're actually done with him, he's uh, as a composer, but I think the thing that he uh is probably most famous for in terms of Wes Anderson is the uh assault on uh, what's that island in Steve's Ping Zisa. Island. Yeah, Ping Island. You know, which is which is a cool piece of music because it starts as a kind of techno music and then goes into a full orchestra of the same variation on the same theme. That's right. Um, also, Mark Mothersbaugh is in Devo. He's in the band Devo. Oh. Um, but I want to give a shout out to him because he, he only composed one song for this movie, but he has been a pretty prolific part of uh, Wes Anderson's work. Well, Although I, wonder- I do think it's interesting that he hasn't worked with them since Sisu. I wonder if the Khaki I mean, well, Scout March is the one that kind of the lighthearted it came mm-hmm. in and out throughout the whole movie it was like um maybe it's been stuck in my head since i've watched it so yeah <laughs> run on my errands to kind of a yeah. little a little bit of an upbeat you know a little bit of kicking your step a little bit of kicking your step but um but i yeah, I, I thought that the kids were going to die at the end, and I thought they were going to swim away. And I almost had a sense memory that they jumped, but I, <laughs> I'll, I was sense, I was remembering that oh yeah, because I remembered that that the kid got um, adopted, adopted yeah. by Bruce Willis. But I was like, holy shit, are they going to jump? Because because it seems like they will. Yeah, and you're right. There is a Shakespearean element to Wes Anderson in that he, uh, you know, he we've we kind of mentioned it before, but he's got like his troop of actors. There's a very theater element to Wes Anderson. Yeah. And you could tell at this point that the actors in Wes Anderson's movies have a complete trust in him in terms of his artistic vision. Yeah. And so I think that that's one of the things that Wes Anderson is should probably be noted for is that he's he's very good at getting his vision across and manifesting that vision on the screen, which is a very very difficult thing to do. Um, and it's a credit to him as a director. I love that Bruce Willis was in this. I think that yeah. it was really cool to see take Bruce Willis, a guy who notoriously <laughs> plays a cop, with a, yeah, and make That's him true. the most befuddled <laughs> cop possible. I don't. I would not normally credit Bruce Willis with a ton of range, um, mm. and to see him in a movie where he does not shoot somebody, 
I can't recall the last movie I saw with that. Uh, but I yeah. thought he did a fantastic job. And he really, the way that he sets up his character as, uh, you know, even when he has uh, Sam in his little home and he's talking to him, and I mm-hmm. go, I can't argue with anything you said, but right. I don't have to. You're 12. Exactly. And he says it in this kind of kind-hearted way, like, I'm just laying out the facts for you, kid. Because yeah. even smart kids put their finger in an electrical socket every well, now and then. Well, it's the thing of the child being very earnest. Mm-hmm. And I love the... Okay, so, you know, with adolescence and with innocence comes naivete. Mm-hmm. And then with naivete comes earnestness. Mm-hmm. Right, because you're looking through the world in a very idealized way, yeah, and you're learning so much so quickly that the world is a very fascinating place to you, and that's where we find Sam in this movie, and that's where we find Susie in this movie. The world is a very, very fascinating place to these people, and that's one of the things that at the beginning of the movie, when I was saying that they're not wise on this rewatch, cause they aren't, they're not really even like more mature than they should be for their age. Yeah, and I don't know why that came across for me in the first viewing, but mm-hmm. in this one, they're not, I mean, they're not very mature. Yeah, they're they're definitely on. naive. They're definitely innocent. They're definitely earnest, but like, it's a thing of, I learned this thing and I want to tell you about it. Don't you know that if you get thirsty, you can put a pebble in your mouth and suck out your saliva when there's a huge river right next to them yeah, and you're on watching this Pristine them do it, Island. And it's not really working. Right. I love because yes. that is the experience. You hear all this stuff, and at some point you have to become a critical thinker. Right. Uh, you know, you can't expect everything to work, but they're at this perfect point where mm-hmm. they don't quite have that yet. And it can be yeah. a painful process at times. And I think yeah. that, to me, is the part that... I struggled with the first time I watched it. And maybe it's the Wes Anderson factor that we've talked about. At what point in your life you go into a Wes Anderson movie can widely (laughs) vary your experience. And so, you know, it's been a dramatic uh, four years since I've watched this movie. So maybe some of it's just my own maturing has taken me to a different place, a different point of view for this film. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's... I, I, but I, that's what I love about that scene with Bruce Willis. Because, yeah, Bruce Willis could say, hey, kid, you're 12 years old. You know, this is mm-hmm. your first love. You're infatuated with this girl. Uh, it's going to pass. You know, you're, yeah. you're going to feel this way about many people throughout your life. So, you know, but he could, he could sit there and crush his dreams and try to get, you know, drop some knowledge on this kid. But he, instead <laughs> he says, you know, I can't argue with anything that you're saying, but I don't have to because you're 12. Yeah. Right? Uh you know, it's so. There's something about that that's 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 very endearing to a viewer, and that's the thing. Like, while I thought this movie was just fine, not great. Mm-hmm. At the end of the movie, when uh, when is it Sam? Sam Shikaski. Yeah, when Sam, you know, looks out the window at Susie when he's climbing out the window. Because he's been hanging out with Susie and her brothers. Yeah. Uh, when he climbs out the window, because Susie's got to go to dinner, and they just look there and stare at each other for a little bit, and then he says, gotta go, and then he leaves, or I'll see you tomorrow or something like that, and he leaves. 
that moment was very heartwarming to me, and it's a great way to end the movie because it's it's a heartwarming film. Um, and I definitely wasn't heartwarmed the first time that I watched it, but that heartwarming comes from the the innocence of children going to the naivete of children going to the uh, earnestness of children, and then that becomes endearing if you want to do that kind of characterization breakdown, at least in my view. Yeah, I. And hats off to Jared Gilman, who did such a good job with and and Kara uh, Hayward. You know, as the kids, mm. I thought they did such a fantastic job. Um, yeah, and- I, th- I think that's one of the things I really like about this movie too, because the kids were not theater kids in in like the classic sense of the word. Mm-hmm. They weren't Haley Joel Osment, right? <laughs> yeah. There's this thing of like the kid who's you know very good at overacting and enunciating all their words, you know, and putting on an adult esque you know act that's very funny because they're children acting like adults. <laughs> yeah, that's my impression. Uh, these kids impression. were there weren't very many good actors in this movie in, in terms of the children. Like I feel like they were just trying to find like authentic kids and not necessarily great actors. Yeah, and they, I think. It's, Especially for uh, Sam and Susie, I, yeah. I just think of some of the the super moments, like mm-hmm. when they're sitting on the rock, and Sam said or Susie says, "Sometimes I wish I was an orphan." Yeah. You're, oh yeah. You're special, and the way the pause, and uh-huh. the way that he delivers the "I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about." Yeah. Is it's a little bit Maxian from Rushmore, except he's. Yeah. Max tried oh, totally. these adult things that he saw in movies, yeah. and in this way, uh, the way that Sam delivered it, it sounded earnest. Like he does right. love her, but he right. is so irritated by her saying that because of how much he's right. been through. Well, it's all bullshit, right? I mean, it's so romantic in the view of a young adult fiction novel. Oh yeah, to be an orphan, mm-hmm. but. She doesn't understand what she's saying is she wishes her parents were dead. And she's not she's not processing the full emotional weight of having that happen to her. And then of course all the things that could possibly happen after that in terms of being passed around the foster system and and whatnot. But even just the base of it of saying, I wish my parents were dead, that's what she's saying there, and she doesn't realize it. And I, I love that line too, because it's very honest. Mm-hmm. Like when I heard her say that the first time, first viewing, I was probably like, "Oh yeah, that's some that's kind of a romantic view of whatever of Oliver Twist or whatever." Yeah, when you read so many, right? Because that was so much of those books. I remember reading books like that as a kid, and yeah, it's always one of the easiest way. It's a it's a cop out for the writer because the writer doesn't have to incorporate some sort of emotional relationship with parents and. Uh-huh have this kid save the world because yeah. what parent is going to let their child run? Harry Potter doesn't work. If Harry Potter's parents are alive, it only works. If Dumbledore yeah. lets totally. him race <laughs> off into danger over yeah. and over and over and over again, because Dumbledore's not his dad. So he's ultimately not responsible. Um, right. And that's, but that's such a crazy notion that that would actually happen. It does. It right. very, it's, it's, very it's, rarely works out for kids who who don't have some sort of guidance and protection right and that's what i like about it because that's really honest and I, I think that one of the things about this movie though that i really that really rubbed me the wrong way is a complete and utter insane lack of character development for people 
And that's the thing that I really don't like because Wes Anderson is really good at painting a picture of a character. Mm-hmm. And like you think about like Klaus in Life Aquatic. Is that his name, Klaus? Yeah. Willem Dafoe's character. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know so much about Klaus at the end of that movie. Like he, <laughs> you know, it was taken under Steve Zissou's wing. He always mm-hmm. saw himself as a son figure, but... Uh, but Steve Zissou never really saw him that way, and he feels slighted by that and all this stuff, right? Yep. You know so much about that character. You don't really know very much about these characters, you know, going through. You can you can conjecture a lot based on their environments, the mm-hmm. environments that we find them in. And yeah, there's like that weird on the side affair between Bruce Willis and Francis McDormand. Yeah, but that never really never pans materializes. Out. Um, Tilda Swinton is reduced to a, a not even a human name. <laughs> She's just social services. Yep. Like, there's so much in the movie that doesn't have. There's no character development. There's just a lot of quirky characters, and I think that's the thing that I don't like. But now, I'm as we talk about it, and we talk about the kids. The kids are very honest. Yeah, and we do well, see they, character development with the scout troop. The khaki scouts come around. No, see, once. I don't see that as character development. Like, that's one of the things that I hated about the movie. And I, it still rubs me the wrong way, that these kids are bullies. They want to get out there and smash this kid's glasses and punch him in the nose. Yeah. And then at the drop of a hat, they completely turn turn face and say, no, we need to save him. That's one of the things that I really don't like about this movie. It's like there's it's no motivation that, that causes that. Like, not only did, were they attacked and stabbed by, <laughs> by Susie... <laughs> But there's nothing that spurs on their their change of mood, right? Mm-hmm. They just at one moment they're like, "No, we have to go back and save him because he's a khaki scout." Yeah, I I don't see that as character development. I see that as quirky quirky troop makes quirky decision. I would say that's a fair assessment, and it, mm-hmm. it's it's over the course of three days, so yeah, you know, there's it's not that everybody needs to develop, but. I think that if there was more to define why the khakis changed their position, even if it was just showing that with their leader gone, that's why they've decided to turn around. You know, and it's kids. They easily, if one person's bullying Sam, it's easy to say that they would all bully him. Well, Um, you could tell that they all, you know, really look up to Edward Norton's character. I think mm -hmm. maybe if Edward Norton had given them some kind of talk. Yeah, because even he. He notes in one of his uh, troopmaster logs, yeah, that morale is low. Sam is Sam is easily the most unliked character in the troop. Yeah, um, yeah. I think just a different line, and then him mobilizing the the kids, maybe or yeah, or saying something that they misinterpret because they're a bunch of naive totally. kids, and then they go out and rescue Sam when that was not his intention. Yeah, or something like that, or maybe him giving a speech where he's like, now I'm not telling you to go out and kidnap Susie. <laughs> and I'm not telling you to go out and break out Sam. Or, you know, mm-hmm. it's something that's like... I, it was just like, that was one of the things... I think that that, that embodies what, what my problems are with this movie. Well, is that the characters are really um, surface characters. They are their costumes, pretty much. Yeah, the, uni- the, only the person- uniforms. Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, Bill Murray's fine in this movie. Um, you know, he he embodies his character great. I love it when he comes down with his shirt off and the bottle of liquor, <laughs> and he grabs an axe, and he says, I'm going to go find a tree to chop down. Yeah. That's great. Um, you know, but at the same time, you don't really see... 
there's just not a lot to sink your teeth into on these characters, on most of them. And for some reason, the one that I really liked was uh, Jason Schwartzman's character, but that might just be the Jason Schwartzman charisma effect. Well, the charisma combined with some of the best lines in the movie. Like, he fires off some (laughs) rapid-fire, fantastic. And he's setting a bunch of things up within the movie that I think are really great. Like, we talk about kids that are naive. and He's trying to point that out to them in his own way. And I've got the quote here just because I I want to read it off because it's such Mm -hmm. a good, I can't offer you a legally binding union. It won't hold up in the state, the County, or frankly, any courtroom in the world due to your age, lack of license and a failure to get parental consent. But the ritual does carry a very important moral weight within yourselves. (laughs) You can't enter into the contract lightly. Look into my eyes. Do you love each other? It's yeah, it's great. He's talking about, it's not really the union. It's not the marriage. Right. And he's not saying you're married for life. It, it really does kind of s- sneak into the movie this thing that, yes, you're not. this is not going to be forever because you're 12. But <laughs> the moment is still important. This is an yeah. important developmental moment when you think that this is it. Um, well, and there's something, you know, they're, they're on the journey at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, they're on the escape path. Yeah. And there's something about the charismatic dude who just comes in and helps out yeah, and is, and is totally to game, him. totally game to help them out. There's something that's really interesting about that character. And I, I feel like maybe because he embodies that small archetype on the journey of the guy who mm-hmm. jumps in and is game to just help them, um, that helps endear you to his character. Because he's nothing more than his costume either. Yeah. Um, he's just a small-time hustler. Working yeah, the Boy Scout. scout. <laughs> working a scout shack. Um, yeah. Which was totally a thing. It's a really... I, oh, I yeah. I really wonder if Wes Anderson has experience with scout, with scout camp. camps. Because that's yeah, I know. pretty the darn The quartermaster? Close. You go... You go, or you you know could have the little general store at the on the Boy Scout camp. Yeah, and they I were used to usually go and just... run by a kid who was like yeah. six years old. <laughs> it's like they're nineteen; they're not yeah. really mature either. So why yeah, are you I, giving I, them power <laughs> over these children? <laughs> I used to just load up on uh, Choco tacos. Charleston chews and oh, Choco tacos. All about the Choco taco. Choco tacos, baby. Oh yeah, and it's you know my parents met at a, at a Boy Scout camp. What? In yeah. A, when they were in scouts or no they were i think they were in scouts at the time but they were counselors at the camp ah i got you yeah but that's you know my mom was a cook there um because her dad would like ran uh-huh the boy scouts mm-hmm. for the region yeah and then my dad was like one of the counselors and like the lifeguard yeah it was so i remember pretty cool working as a counselor at a couple of camps and when you mm-hmm. had a girl in camp that was like ballpark your <laughs> age that was, yeah. That was. What else did you do to pass this this free time? But yeah, try I mean, to look cool. <laughs> well, I mean, I went to Boy Scout camp. This is totally off subject, but whatever. <laughs> I went to Boy Scout camp a couple of times, but I also went to like church camp when I was a kid. And whenever you went to church camp, it was like whenever I went to church camp, it was like, okay, who's gonna be my camp girlfriend? <laughs> we got one week. Let's. We got one week, and it was always this whirlwind week. Of like, you find the girl you like, by the end of day two, you need to tell one of her friends that you like her so that she could tell her and then see if she likes you back. And then hopefully by the end of day three, you're holding hands at campfire 
and then it gets really weird on day four and then on day five you're sad and you leave and then you write like three letters to each other and then the relationship is over yeah and then you never see her again because you can't drive a car <laughs> and <laughs> she lives in like she lives like four hours away yeah Oh. And that's that's camp relationships. But this that's the cool thing about this movie yeah. is that it does capture that very it encapsulates that really well that whirlwind when Sam looks at Susie and you know the other girl she's like what kind of bird are you and the other girl's rattling off and he's like no yeah. what kind of what bird, kind are, of bird you? are you it's like oh nailed it like just right. the that James Dean cool Mm-hmm. For a kid in a scout uniform, a girl dressed up as a bird, <laughs> yeah, uh, was really spectacular. And I agree that the going back to the emotional, the character development was yeah, yeah, was a little bit slim. And you slim. know, Jason Schwartzman for the thirty seconds he's on screen rocks it. <laughs> but on the flip side of Jason Schwartzman, uh, I wanted to just I was not really joking about the dog thing in my PSA right. it is like the number one thing that if I could cut it out of this movie <laughs> I, in a heartbeat, I would take scissors to the reel and just, ah, because I know there's just no, it, it does not have any character. There's no character right. development around it. And you don't mm-hmm. just go having kids kill a dog right out of the blue and then have no, if the khaki scouts had like sweated that up in their treehouse, mm-hmm. that would have been something. If and Sam gets a kind of a good line out of it where he's like, it doesn't matter, he doesn't deserve to die. Um, yeah, but the emotional like that's another thing that happens in childhood is that mm-hmm. you at some point your dog dies, and yeah. how it goes has a profound effect on how you understand and deal with death, especially a kid who has nobody there to uh. To kind of well, help yeah, but, you, but understand. but it wasn't Max's dog. It wasn't Max's dog. But it was the troop the troop dog. That I think it belonged to like even... one of the kids. I'm not know, really sure. That kid was not broken up when it happened. No, I mean it, it belonged to. Um, was it? I'm it pretty sure to it belonged... the kid that got stabbed. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it belonged to the to the leader. He didn't when, really. Yeah, when Sam sees him later, he's like, "You're by the way, your dog died," and he's and then they like start fighting. Yeah, but the kid kind of bre- he was fighting with him just because he wanted to be a pain in the ass. He wasn't right. fighting with him. Because yeah, totally. If he had lit up because his dog was dead, if he blamed Sam, even though it was his own stupid fault with all of his buddies, yeah, um, you know there was just uh, I want to <laughs> see two hours of people getting shot in the head over mm-hmm. a dead dog. That's kind of my baseline for what I need to see for that to try Cin- and tug that emotional. Of yeah, <laughs> cinematically. If you're gonna tug that string with me, like I really need somebody. I need you to get behind it. And this was just. It felt kind of dumb, you know. You, you like dags? <laughs> exactly. Dags. They dags, like that dags? ended in murder. <laughs> um. <laughs> Do you think there's any significance to Susie's character being a raven at the end of Noah's Ark? Um. I don't. Was there a a raven bit in no, the that's, Bible? Is that no, the that's last the thing bird about that they it, send is out like to find a, land? In the Bible, it's a it's a dove. Oh, but I feel like they sent out a raven before the dove. Raven? No, I'm gonna just plug. The, yep. Okay. Noah sent out a raven. Ah. The dove, and he commands the raven is not only black, but so I was a little surprised that it brought Noah no consolation. So the raven comes back and is like, "Nope, it's nothing out there." 
Oh, so it's like racist. <laughs> You're saying the raven's lazy? No, I'm saying you just said it was black, so it didn't find land. Like oh, there's there's got to be some sorry, racial. I think I cut the rest. That, right? of it. it was the raven is not only is not only black but unclean, so it is little surprised that it brought no. So this jstor.org exactly. is racist in there summation of the bible i'm just saying there's probably some racial undertones there speaking of racial undertones this movie should just be called white people problems there's not a single minority on this entire island yeah but you know what they're probably not minorities on these islands in real life all right so fuck who gives a shit (laughs) uh, you know the greek the 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 norse gods they wouldn't be black they'd all be white yeah at least they thor heimdall getting down yeah that's what i'm saying it's like it it wouldn't it wouldn't have to be like a huge it's just weird to me to to have a movie where that's this whitewashed dude this is like uber whitewashed and especially with somebody like Wes Anderson we've talked about in the past his movies are pretty much whitewashed all of them and then this is like the most whitewashed of all of them yeah and it's just it's a little weird to me i mean it's a lot. i think that we've had minor discussions about this before mm-hmm. and I'm thinking you're throwing shade now because, and this is probably a good time. Let's, let, yeah. if we're going to take him to task for Moonrise Kingdom, like, let's yeah. really drag out some of the other laundry we've kind of swept under the rug. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, he's got a real <laughs> problem with with diverse casting. And yes. it's funny because I kept hearing the quote today. Oh, the Directors Guild of America, by the way, has a podcast. It's really mm-hmm. cool. Um, okay. And they've covered Guillermo del Toro talking about Crimson Peak with Alfonso uh, Inerat. Inaradu? Is that how you pronounce it? Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu? Inaritu. Um, yeah. Anyways, side bit. I meant to tell you about that. It's a really good listen, and they they actually have access to directors while we merely conjecture. So back to <laughs> trashing on Wes Anderson. He's got a diversity problem, um, and uh-huh. it's weird because he does have characters and exotic places, and he has had people from diverse backgrounds Right. Before. I mean, they shot a movie in India. It, you but know, he does have an but, issue with how he frames them yeah he, he frames them and, and uh you know i i i, I always want to pre- preface this that i'm not really qualified to talk about this because i you know um white males but it's just it's just something that rubs me the wrong way i'll just leave it at that okay. i feel like for somebody who comes across as the hipsters uh jesus in some ways <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> hipster jesus hipster no, he's not like hipster Jesus. He's like hipster Paul, right? He's writing most of the New Testament, right? Um, <laughs> okay. He's hipster Paul. It just seems to me like there should be more diversity in his films. And it's a little bit of an issue for me. And with how well he that. writes with the material that yeah. he's using, it would not be hard. He's writing, especially with this movie, because he made such a... In a lot of the interviews, he makes a big deal about how this movie is one of Susie's books. Like she is going on the adventures that she reads Uh about. Uh Those books are full of people from different backgrounds and origins and race, color, creed. Um, Yeah. Why not make, if you're going to really go there, like go there with this place and who gives a shit if it's a Nantucket Island. Um, Right. There's no reason there couldn't be. There's no reason there couldn't be. There's no reason the narrator. I mean, is, is, whatever. I'm just saying there could be more diversity. Yes. 
Um, and I don't. I think that it's a cop out to say oh, it's it's a, it's a New England island in nineteen. It could be. It's like this is a real New England li- island. <laughs> like the 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 police chief is wearing a flannel baseball cap. Sorry, we'll go there. Are you jealous about the baseball you, cap? I am jealous about the baseball cap. It looks like it was made by Ebbetsfield flannels, which makes me a little bit jealous. <laughs> but you're totally right. I mean, it's a fantastical world. You could populate it however you want, Wes Anderson. Maybe just. Maybe make it fantastical. Yeah, maybe make it. Maybe make it. Speaking of fantastical, though, mm-hmm. um, I do think that this is an interesting movie in context of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, because he comes out of Fantastic Mr. Fox, makes Moonrise Kingdom, and in you know Fantastic Mr. Fox is a kids movie, right? It's a yeah, it's good. It's designed. I mean, you wouldn't have any problem showing that to a seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um. This movie is kind of a kids' movie for adults in some ways, and I think you got to kind of see that in context, right? Uh, it's it's Wes Anderson making a movie about children, but for adults. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure this thing's rated R. I think we um, uh, is it? They, yeah, they say fuck in it, but they just say it once. It's PG thirteen. Ooh, PG thirteen. So there was just um, one. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny because like throughout the movie, like they they say hell a couple times. Mm-hmm. A couple different characters say hell. Um, Edward Norton's character says hell, and Francis McDormand's character says hell. Mm-hmm. And both times they qualify with saying like, you know, sorry, excuse my language. Yeah, like hell is a really bad word. And then later in the movie, Bill Murray's like, "What the fuck is going on with this goddamn shit?" Like, being all mad. Um. But it's kind of interesting in that context to like look at this as kind of Wes Anderson's maybe kids movie for adults. But it is such a departure. And I, it's interesting to look at the writer for this one because uh, Wes Anderson is a co- collaborator in mm-hmm. terms of his projects. He's, he's basically written with eh, four different people up to this point, uh, up to Moonrise Kingdom. He has Owen Wilson, Noah Baumbach, uh, Roman Coppola, and then Jason Schwartzman does a little bit of writing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this one... And Darjeeling Limited are co-written by Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola. And I think you could make the argument, especially if you're looking at this from our review, that those are two of his weakest movies in terms of maybe entertainment value. So maybe that has something to do with it, because I love the Bombach collaborations. The Bombachs are Steve Zissou and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Who does he write Grand Budapest with? That's what I want to know next. Ooh, but there's no way to know that I until know. we talk I'm about Grand Budapest next week. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm, now. I'm not going to get deep into it. Let's look here just really quick. Writers. Uh-huh. Stefan Zweig. Nope. Inspired the writings of. Yep. Nope. Just uh, Wes Anderson. And Hugo Wes Anderson Guinness. and Hugo Guinness for story. So that's interesting. Yeah, so not a collaborator what on that is one. But story is that kind of like how we just make up a bunch of dumb stories, but we don't actually write anything down. Yeah, is that what that credit means? I think it's no dialogue. <laughs> You're just kind of like oh, that sort of but thing. What about this? Yeah. Okay. Um, I could do that. <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> uh, so I I do think it's interesting because I I think we'll want to talk about that on the wrap up cast is yeah. who our collaborators are wrote. Uh, uh, Owen Wilson, I think, did he did? I'm pretty sure he did Bottle Rocket Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. I think he was a co-writer on all three of those. So I'll have to double check. And then uh, Noah Baumbach was Steve Zissou and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Roman Coppola was uh, Grand Budapest and Moonrise Kingdom. So 
just interesting. Yeah, something to chew on. It's, it's something to chew on, and it's something. It's a way to. It's a lens with which to look through, to see these movies in a different light. Yeah, and I think we're gonna see. I I want to start labeling it similarly to how we have the phases of uh, Quentin Tarantino. Oh, yeah. I yep. think we're getting into there's like a pre-fantastic Mr. Fox and a post-fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh. And I think in Moonrise Kingdom we see it just a little bit at the end. The way that right. uh Anderson likes to frame the shot of them on top of the chapel and mm-hmm. we get it in silhouette some and even when it's not in silhouette um there's something kind of ethereal about it you know how they shot yeah. it uh you know looks like it's sta- on a stage but they make it look yeah. like it's on a stage it doesn't and really is, have is a three-dimensional a, quality oh, to it and they use stop motion on the map too yes. when they have like the little pings going back and forth on the map they use stop motion which is very visually appealing mm-hmm. and then um, the way that they hang off at the end in a way mm-hmm. in a way that is yeah. not quite right and we get that yeah. in Grand Budapest. And I think that uh-huh. we saw a little bit with, of it with Steve Zissou. Um, but I think with Fantastic Mr. Fox and all the way up to Since Isle of Dogs is going to be stop motion. Um, yep. I think we're very much in this in this stage of his mm. career where he no longer feels compelled to do the movie like a movie. Before yeah, he did I mean, the movie... But he used his sort of fixed perspectives, the way he likes to pan. Yeah. Um, but now we're getting into a point where his his grip is so tight, he's moving on to the stage, the sets, um, and how yeah, I, even that's put together. I would definitely argue that that started with Steve Zissou, though. Stop motion animals, the miniatures of the Belafonte, yes. how he made underwater look like an aquarium at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, the fake animals, like I feel like that really, that whole visual style, I feel like really started with Steve Zissou, not not fantastic, Mr. Yeah. Fox. Yeah, and he, you know, he doesn't really, he does a little bit with the train in Darjeeling, but oh, I didn't really notice that pulls back from. I mean, we get at the oh, end I know. when they do yeah, the yeah, yeah. whole. You're right, but he really only yep. takes that one moment. I think. Oh, you're right. The stop motion. Now tiger. he really yeah. starts to. Like he just he'll, he's going to do what he wants at this point, and nobody's <laughs> going to fight with him. So. Um, yeah, I want to get through just a couple more things here because we're running out of time talking about this movie. Right. Um, anyway. There are definite Andersonisms in this. For one, smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, even the even Sam smokes in this movie. Yeah. I mean, Wes Anderson, <laughs> they're going to smoke in the movies. Uh, I like the heavily armed crew. Like, I like how these kids have weapons that are way above their pay grades. <laughs> like, nobody needs a Bowie knife that big. Yeah. Um, you don't need to bring a hatchet. Like, just the, just the way that this could go wrong. But it's funny, because it reminds me of Life Aquatic, where they give everybody the Glock. Yeah, everybody If, you, if you're part of the crew, you get a gun. You know, that sort of thing mm-hmm. is kind of funny. And then we don't um, even see him execute with the weapons. We get the action yeah. scene is two flashes, and we're out. A very interesting thing here. There's a moment at the end of this movie where Francis McDormand and Bill Murray are laying in their perspective beds next to each other. Yeah. And Francis McDormand looks over at Bill Murray and says, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Which is an exact line from Grand Budapest, I mean, from uh, Darjeeling Limited, when Angelica Houston tells the three, uh, her three sons, don't stop feeling sorry for yourself. It's unattractive. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Which is, I mean, th- is this this Roman Coppola's calling card? He's got to put that line in his movies? I don't know. Maybe. I think we're getting uh, more Wes Anderson films where he is more clearly stating in mm-hmm. the dialogue thematic elements, like with Fantastic yeah. Mr. Fox, who talked about but it's how funny he that highlighted the the confident buffoon just flat yeah. out oh, stated totally. its characteristics. Yeah, but it's interesting that they have basically the exact same line in both movies, and they're both spoken by the matriarch of the family, and that's yeah. sort of, like it's it's interesting that that it's it's just an exact basically corollary between the movies. It's a tunnel, it's a wormhole between the two universes. Um, other things here, uh, there's some really good physical comedy in here. We talked about physical comedy in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm-hmm. I love that the scene where all of the uh, all the Boy Scouts break Susie out, or Khaki Scouts break Susie out of her house, and they're going through that split door, and they all go out the bottom door, yeah. <laughs> and then the last one op- just opens the top door, and they all could have just walked out together, and they do a quick cut to the next scene. I, I like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I really um, like the door in the treehouse when the kid <laughs> leans on it and yeah. just falls off, and oh, he yeah. kind of just he tries to play it cool, uh, and then. I like how a lot of the battlefield scenes in this are set up kind of like samurai movies. Oh. There, there's the two battle scenes, right? There's mm-hmm. the one that's uh, when the when the khaki scouts confront Sam and Susie, and then there's the one where the whole hullabaloo ch- tries to chase down Sam and Susie. Yeah, and Sam gets struck by lightning. Um, those two scenes are like these big sprawling battlefields, and there's like fog rolling on the battlefield, and everybody kind of creeps in the frame. It's very much like a samurai movie, which yeah. I thought was kind of cool. Um, and then the final thing I want to talk about, we haven't talked about it a lot, but god damn it, Wes Anderson likes to name things. He loves to name things, like the National Department of Inclement Weather. Yes. Or... You know, it goes out even like the Khaki Scouts or Camp Ivanhoe. The one thing that I, I've written on all of my notes that I have not talked about is how much he likes to, to name airlines. Because we had like Kentucky Air in Steve Zissou. We had Air Italiano, I think, in Darjeeling Limited. That's the uh, oh, Jason Schwartzman had a had a plane ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's there's another one that was in Fantastic Mr. Fox. There was a an airline that was associated with the one farmer. Um, so I just think it's interesting that there's like, he loves to name airlines. He's I, 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 There's something that's interesting about airlines. I think you're right. He it likes was, to name a lot of things, but it was called bean air, bean by the way. <laughs> so I, I just want to keep an eye out for that. And, and airlines are fun. Cause there's like so much theming that goes around an airline. There's the uniforms of the people. There's, the you know barf bags with the you know there's there's the safety manual there's the zip out you know uh, carry on bags that the that the flight attendants might have all that so the kind of that fantastical view of like 1960s air travel yeah and right? 1960s just the graphic design element where yeah. it was all inclusive it was it's the singular vision of all of the pieces yeah. All right, well that's our that's our Moonrise Kingdom cast, man. Yeah, not a bad movie. Not I just a bad I wanted to put that out there. Not a bad movie. I don't hate it. Just it's just not my favorite Wes Anderson movie by a long shot. Um, it's very Wes Anderson-y, but I mean I'll take Fantastic Mr. Fox over this movie any day. Oh, yeah. any day of the week. Well, and we're going into. Grand Budapest. The final, the final I'm film. Curious to see where this one falls when we get to the the, fi- the last I rankings. Because I loved this movie it's when really I watched good. it. 
I'm excited. I, to get back to it. I really loved it, and the confident buffoon is front and center once again. <laughs> So we'll see you next. We'll see you next week for the Darjeeling or for for the Grand Budapest (laughs) Hotel. And uh, until then, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.